Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of Jira, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal, and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Dear listeners, guys, gals, and non-binary pals, you're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, your go-to podcast for the kind of frank, funny, and feminist advice you can only get from a straight-talking big sis. With me, your host, Clementine Ford. Special shout-out to the good folk who support my Patreon, which helps me to make this and a whole host of other things. Today's episode is a very special one. I had had a guest lined up, but because of a number of different things, we've had to postpone the recording of that episode for a few weeks. So I've had to pivot and come up with something different. So I'm going to take the opportunity to read a chapter of my book, which is coming out in 10 days. On November the 2nd, How We Love will be available to buy in all good bookstores. Please shop independent, by the way. And there will be no questions from listeners in this because of the fact that I'm reading a chapter. But hopefully you'll find that the content of the chapter covers some issues maybe that might come up in questions. If you prefer to listen to audiobooks, You might be pleased to know that I've recorded the entire thing for Audible Australia. I'm very happy to have worked with them once again. Both of my previous two books, Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys, were also released through Audible, and you can still check them out. The chapter that I'm going to read today is called The Queen of Cool, and it's a little revisit to my time as a 15-year-old girl having just arrived in Adelaide at a new school with all of the terrible, terrible issues of insecurity that come up with that. And I hope you enjoy it. Chapter 2. The Queen of Cool I'm not a particularly gloomy person. I read Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre as a teenager, but outside of tortured diary entries detailing all the ways my parents didn't understand me, accompanied by crude drawings of my body that made me look like either a heavy water balloon suspended by the neck or a misshapen duck, I could never really summon the passion for a demanding routine of gothic depression. I occasionally wore black, but only because my mother had once told me it was slimming. Sartorially, I alternated between clothes I found in op shops and those bought in places that catered mainly to middle-aged men named Gary. This meant a steadily rotating mix of polyester caftans and ill-fitting men's trousers, and occasionally, because the 90s were very big on the dress and pants combo, both at the same time. 
I was drawn to the caftans primarily because I thought they made me seem interesting and mysterious, but also because they covered my midsection in a way that 90s contemporary fashion simply refused to. And as much as I'd like to say my fondness for men's trousers was due to me being effortlessly cool and androgynous, I think we can all agree the existence of the caftans makes that impossible. I chose the men's trousers for two reasons. The first was that men are allowed to have girth, and they eclipsed the minimal sizing found in the fashion hellholes where women are banned from having any hips whatsoever, and possibly also a butt crack. The second was that I had formed the habit, or the habit had formed me, of avoiding wearing anything too overtly feminine, because the thought of being judged by my peers as someone who considered themselves worthy of the title of girl was too humiliating. It was an exceptionally hot look overall, largely because everything I owned was extremely flammable. Luckily, as previously stated, I was not cool enough to be part of a subculture like goth or aspiring teen witch, so the risk of me coming too close to any candles was minimal. I had more of an opportunity than most teenagers to experiment with my overall aesthetic, because my family moved around so often. Unfortunately for me, I wasn't the kind of new girl who piques the interest of her classmates, no matter how desperately I wished I were. To be that kind of girl, you need to be at least one of two things, and preferably both. One, hot. Two, cool. The combination of these two things would make you worldly, which is like reaching the summit of Mount Everest in terms of adolescent cool girl cachet. And although I had indeed lived in enough foreign countries to be considered worldly in a technical sense, I had never kissed a boy, at least not outside of party games of truth or dare, where being dared to kiss me always seemed to elicit an audible groan, or been fingered at a dance, both of which were considered essential requirements. I knew this, yet I greeted each new social setting with naive optimism. Perhaps this would be the place where being a bookish nerd would be highly valued. Maybe the kids at this school would appreciate the back catalogue of Andrew Lloyd Webber and celebrate a girl who was happy to engage you directly on what Disney got wrong in their animated retelling of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. I think you know where this is going. In 1996, my family moved from Brisbane to Adelaide. We had only moved to Australia from the UK a year earlier, and had moved to the UK two years before that from my childhood home in Oman. I had been uncool in each of these places, a fact that had become far more pronounced in Brisbane when I'd made the questionable choice to have my long hair cut into a style that I thought was reminiscent of Gwyneth Paltrow's, but in actual fact more closely resembled a member of one of the many boy bands that graced us with their sameishness that decade. This latest move took place in August, meaning that I was not only forced to start a new school again, but I had to do it at the start of term four. I have no idea why my parents hated me and wanted me to be unhappy, but there it is. My early days at Trinity College were characterised by many of the same elements that had been present at the other schools I'd attended. There was deep, crushing anxiety on my part, not to mention the bad haircut, and, from everyone else, a brief curiosity that quickly gave way to almost total indifference. By virtue of the unspoken invisible hierarchy of power that exists across all secondary schools, I was quickly identified as a member of the Unpopulars and invited to join them forthwith. I accepted my place gratefully. At least I would have somewhere to sit at lunch. The first Friday of Term 4 at my new school turned out to be casual clothes day. This meant that instead of checked summer dresses and straw hats, the schoolyard would be full of girls in low-slung bootleg jeans and t-shirts made by Roxy or Billabong. The 90s were not a particularly good decade for fashion, which might explain why choker necklaces were so popular then, but certainly doesn't explain why they're making a comeback now. 
I laboured carefully over my outfit choice, not wanting to pass up the opportunity to show my classmates the real me. I finally settled on my wide leg Tencel jeans. For anyone below the age of 35, Tencel is a kind of denim so soft it lacks absolutely any structure whatsoever, the material production of which has surely been partially responsible for the climate crisis we find ourselves in now. A white singlet that belonged to my mother. A cardigan in dusty rose chenille, which is a kind of unattractive wool that seemed to be made almost entirely out of plastic. It was one of my favourites. And my suede Adidas sneakers. It was a look that I figured would make me seem both feminine and edgy, two traits I was sure would be welcomed enthusiastically by the 15-year-old boys at Trinity. It didn't work. Still, I was thrilled when Jenny Turner turned to me in science class and said, Cool shoes. I guess you're kind of a triple J person, hey? I nodded. Yeah, I replied nonchalantly, trying to hide the glow that was beginning to burn brightly inside and not wanting my cardigan to catch a light. I'm pretty into Triple J. She smiled at me kindly. Cool, she replied, turning back to her work. Inwardly, I heaved a sigh of relief that she hadn't asked me to list my favourite songs or artists. The truth is that, until that point, I hadn't been entirely sure whether or not Australia's youth station was pronounced Triple J or just JJJ. Most of the time, I listened to old Ella Fitzgerald CDs and the original cast recording of Les Miserables, The only radio station I tuned into was Mix 102.3, which was the home of my two favourite programs, Love Song Dedications, because it made me feel hopeful that someone might one day dedicate a song to me, and Dr. Feelgood, because it made me feel good in my downstairs area, but also educated and prepared. One day, I hoped to have sexual intercourse, and I wanted to be ready. When the class ended, I loitered at the door pretending to tie my shoelace, in the hope that Jenny would invite me to have lunch with her and the other cool kids on the chapel steps. But she didn't. See ya, she said, giving me a little wave as she walked past. Bye, I called back. Too eager, I thought to myself. Be cool. My family lived in Gawler, a town about 40 kilometres north of Adelaide. It was billed as the gateway to the Barossa, which in terms of tourism slogans is kind of like saying, she's weird, but her cousin has a pool. I remember the day of the move clearly. It was hot and dry, the kind of day where you feel like all the moisture has been sucked from your body, leaving nothing but a brittle nest of hair and fingernails behind. My parents had found a sandstone house at the top of a hill with a cottage out back that I made loud noises about wanting to live in, while secretly hoping to be denied the right to, because I am and always have been scared of the dark, and am comforted by the knowledge that someone is sleeping in the next room. They were busy doing moving things, so I volunteered to walk down to the local supermarket to pick up some groceries. It was further than I'd realised, and as I dragged the shopping bags up the seemingly endless climb of Carlton Road, I abandoned all the romantic thoughts I'd had about getting a bicycle and riding to school. Mum! I called out when I got home, still some years off from learning for myself how excruciating that wail can be. I'm back! Where should I put the stuff? In the fridge in the cottage, she yelled back, stating what can only be described as the fucking obvious. I heaved a tortured sigh in response, as if I'd been asked to trek to the top of a mountain, again, and lumbered the literal ten metres down to the granny flat, which my parents had somewhat obscurely chosen as the location for our kitchen. I put the cold things away and left the rest of it on the counter for someone else to deal with, reasoning I had done my part. I'd practically scaled Everest for God's sake. 
with heavy bags. My brother was coming through the screen door when I went upstairs, upstairs being how we would come to refer to the actual house, which sat on a slight incline in relation to the cottage, making it technically higher, but only by a bit. Watch it, I screeched, having determined early on in life never to miss an opportunity to fight with him. Fuck off, he said. Dad, I whined. Make him stop. Both of you stop it, Dad boomed back. The heat had not subsided, and no one was in the mood for a teenage girl with attitude. Clementine, go start unpacking your things. I stormed up to my bedroom and surveyed the scene. Boxes filled the centre of the room. My bed was pushed into the corner, and along one wall was the ugliest, most ramshackle wardrobe I'd ever seen in my life. There were numerous compartments and drawers, none of which closed properly because the cheap ply board had warped over the years. There was a mirror in the centre, and I stood there and looked at myself for a few minutes. My face was still red from the long walk up the hill, and the sweat had dried in my hair, plastering the shaggy boy band locks flat against my cheeks. I lifted my shirt and prodded my stomach, turning from side to side to assess my body from all angles. If I could only be thin, I thought, my life would be amazing. I'd be pretty and popular and all the boys would like me. It's a terrible thing, this view we have as young girls that our real lives, our happy lives, are sitting just over the horizon, waiting for us to become small enough to fit into them. Tiny, wispy creatures who could be carried around in someone else's pocket, like a lip gloss or a condom or an old lolly wrapper. The funny thing is that I had been thin before. Properly thin, people worried about you thin. And I hadn't experienced any of the features of what I thought constituted a good life. It hadn't made me more popular. It hadn't snared me a boyfriend. And it certainly hadn't made me happy. Now, over a quarter of a century later... I think maybe adolescence is just supposed to suck. Ask anyone who survived the trauma of high school and lived to see who the beautiful people became, and you'll hear the same thing. Nobody wants to peak when they're 15. But I didn't know that then, and so I looked in the mirror and continued adding to the endless mental catalogue of things I would change about myself if I could. This was the house in which I would spend the remainder of my adolescence. This was the bedroom where my goals and ambitions would be formed, and in which I would perfect the art of masturbating very, very quietly. This was the mirror that would witness it all, that would see every discernible angle of my body, the outfits pulled on and torn off, the tears, the posturing, the puckering of lips and the deeply private forays into imagining what it would be like to make my body move sexy. Over the next few years, the bedroom would come to know all my secrets, held tight to my chest at night, or breathed down the phone after I had dragged it into my room on its long extension cord. Sometimes it would be privy to the secrets of other girls too. Girls who'd come to eat candied popcorn and watch movies and squawk late into the night, before quietly speaking the name of their crushes into the dark and then commanding in a giggling whisper, Don't tell anyone, you have to promise. I never would, was always the reply. Fingers crossed behind backs. Here I had a crush of my own. His name was Peter Crayford, and I had never felt like this before. Of course, I'd thought that about every person I'd had a crush on previously, but this one was different. 
The crush hit me without warning, as most crushes seem to do. I was standing outside Miss Prentice's English class, waiting for the bell to ring, when I overheard a conversation between Peter and Louisa Rose. We'd just come from a school assembly where Louisa had made an announcement about collecting canned food to donate to the Salvation Army for Christmas. Collecting food, are you? He asked her. Yes, Louisa replied. She was a brainy type, very straightforward and clever in that way that can also make people come across as a bit weird sometimes. I'll bring you some canned asparagus, he said. To be clear, this was not a funny exchange. But there was something very droll about the way he said it, enunciating every syllable of asparagus, which is also obviously the least appealing of the canned food family. For a girl raised on the scathing wit of Rowan Atkinson and his legendary turn as Edmund Blackadder, it had the effect of lighting a bonfire in my heart. I snorted and tried to cover my laughter, but I needn't have worried. I wasn't on Peter Crayford's radar, and he wouldn't have noticed how the world had suddenly tilted on its axis. Because I was so new to the school, I hadn't known who Peter was before that morning, and I immediately made it my mission to find out as much about him as I could. He wasn't the kind of person you immediately noticed when you walked into a room, existing somewhere outside of the genre of teen heartthrobs that have graced every school in existence, and will forevermore. His eyes were a little close together, and he had what could be derisively described as girlish hips, but for whatever reason he still floated on the periphery of the in-crowd, where conventionally unattractive boys are often able to find a home, unlike their female counterparts. But these flaws only made him more appealing to me. He was funny, clearly, but he was also physically flawed. It didn't seem preposterous to fantasise about a series of firsts with him, because in many ways we were surely the same. We were both awkward-looking and slightly portly, a kinship I felt he would appreciate, this being before I understood how audaciously unaware men can be of their own physical appearance when it comes to choosing a mate. I learned he was a year older than the others in our class, and I felt I was too, intellectually speaking. He was a swimmer, and apparently a very good one. I have a very vivid memory of him walking alongside the side of a pool, poured into a pair of speedos, goggles wrapped tightly around his face. He stops to look up at the stands and, staring straight at me, pushes his goggles up to his forehead and smiles, brown eyes crinkling at the corners. I can recall it so clearly, this scene, and decades later it still has the power to halt me in my tracks. But of course, it's not a memory at all. It's something I brought into being in the confines of my own head, a bit of glamour given form by the powerful magic of a teenage girl's deepest desires. Still, I see it there as if it really happened. And when we're dealing with memory... Who's to say what's real and what's not? English was the only class that Peter and I shared, which seemed a stroke of good luck to me. It was my best subject, which made it my favourite class, and I took full advantage of the opportunity to show off how smart I was. At 15, I still laboured under the delusion that boys would be impressed by clever girls. A terrible miscalculation, I think you'll agree. I learned about Peter's music preferences during one such class, when Miss Prentice directed us to give an oral presentation on a song of our choice. Chelsea Brown, our year's resident mean girl with a pinched mouth and a vicious tongue, delivered a very earnest and passionate speech on Everclear's heroin girl, the basic upshot being that drugs are bad and none of us should ever take them. Mine was a less cerebral contribution, a comedic assassination of Gina G's chart-topping club hit Ooh-ah, just a little bit. Miss Prentice loved it, 
which in turn infuriated Chelsea, who stayed behind after class to argue against my good grade because she didn't even talk about the music. She just bagged the song, which is actually a fair point, but humor always wins over a crowd. I don't make the rules, baby. But the person whose presentation I really looked forward to seeing that day was Peter's, and he didn't disappoint. Although I maintained a laser-like focus on his activities throughout each of our English classes, I'd barely heard him say more than a few sentences. Most of his time was spent leaning backwards in his chair and slowly rocking back and forth, the universal dialect of bored adolescent boys. This would be the first time I'd heard him properly speak, and I was excited. When Miss Prentice called on him, I assumed the calm veneer of someone trying not to arouse suspicion, but my insides were churning. For the next five minutes, I would be given unencumbered permission to stare directly at the object of my fancy, to gaze at his lips, his eyes, his face, to take in his unusually long and slender fingers, clutched as they were around the piece of lined A4 paper on which I could see his scrawled handwriting. I knew I wouldn't have another opportunity like this for a while, certainly not before the end of term and the long, endless, unfilled days of summer that awaited us all. I needed to make the next five minutes count. I can tell you with total sincerity that I have never been more interested in hearing about the Beatles than I was in Miss Prentice's classroom that day, nor have I ever learned as little about a subject while staring intently at the person delivering a thesis on it. I did learn, however, that they were Peter Crayford's favourite band, and that his hair was silkier in the front than I'd thought, despite the constant immersion in chlorine. I learned that his lips were formed in a perfect Cupid's bow, and his front two teeth were slightly crooked, a feature common to most of the people I've loved, I've realised. I had never really cared for the Beatles. I still don't. I would feel embarrassed about dismissing the greatest band of all time as overrated, but men have been doing that to women's art for centuries, so I don't really care. Also, teenage girls discovered and popularised the Beatles, but they only became enshrined as rock and roll legends when men decided they were good, so, again, I don't really care. But the knowledge that Peter loved the Beatles was all the incentive I needed to become an instant super fan. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty into JJJ. Prior to this, the only music I had ever bought was the mainstream jazz CDs I found in discount bins at the local Sanity. I had numerous best-of CDs featuring Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday and Dinah Washington, my reasoning at the time being that the purchasing of music itself was somehow the same thing as having a personality. And so it didn't matter that my collection consisted of multiple versions of essentially the same playlists, give or take a song here or there. After class that day, I swapped out the jazz and started stockpiling best-of collections of the Beatles, and I'd sit in my room and play the songs over and over, pretending to myself that I liked them because it made me feel closer to Peter. That was the summer John Lennon's posthumously released single Free as a Bird hit the airwaves, and it played on high rotation in the local Wendy's, where I worked as a professional hot dog eater and occasional ice cream scooper. Every time the song's opening bars came over the loudspeaker, I took it as a cosmic sign. It's our song, I'd think to myself, my cheeks growing almost as pink as the shorts that formed part of the Wendy's uniform code, which given their luminosity, was no mean feat, I can tell you. I imagined us dancing to it at a social gathering, both of us swaying slowly in time with the music, my head resting comfortably on his shoulder, a detail that might have proven difficult in real life, given we were the same height. His hand resting gently on the small of my back. Clementine, he would whisper. Yes, I'd murmur back. I like you, he'd say. 
like, like, like you. I like you too, I'd reply. Like, like, like you. And then he would kiss me and it would be wonderful and perfect in exactly how I had imagined. A circle of people would form around us and cheer loudly, some of them giving him congratulatory slaps on the back while I stood there, his arm draped loosely over my shoulders, looking embarrassed but also incredibly thrilled to have finally been picked. Oh, that poor, sweet, darling girl. How much I feel for her. For whom among us has not fantasised in this way about someone whose love we so optimistically yearn for? Have we not all longed to be desired not just by these objects of affection, but recognised as worthy of them by our peers? To be thought of as a suitable match? To walk into a room transformed and glorious, met by the wide eyes and whispered shock of those people who would be surprised not just to discover we have an interior life of dreams and wishes ourselves, but that we exist at all? I had learned early on that I wasn't considered an appropriate candidate for Trinity's cool group after Jenny Turner invited and then uninvited me to a party at Nathan Crabb's house. The invitation had been issued in science class a few days after our first conversation. Hey, she said, turning around in her chair. What are you doing on Friday night? Um, I replied, making a pretense of mentally running through my calendar as if it were filled to the brim with social engagements. I don't think I have anything on that night. Great, she said. Nathan's having a party. You should come. Really? I exclaimed again too eagerly. I mean, if you're sure that would be okay. Yeah, Jenny said. I mean, I have to check with him first, but I'm sure it'll be fine. Why wouldn't it be? Let me dispel any fears you might have that this was a setup. It wasn't. Jenny was and still is one of the nicest people I know. A rare example of someone who happens to be super popular and also just a genuinely very excellent human. But the social strata of high school is a complex beast. We all have our place in it and it can be difficult to swim against the current even when you're a big fish. For a few days the party lived in my head as a beacon. I started planning an outfit and thinking about the logistics. Would there be alcohol? Should I bring my own? Who would I talk to? How could I be as cool as possible? Would I meet Jenny and her friends there or beforehand? I knew Nathan lived near me, which meant I could walk and save myself the humiliation of having my dad deliver me. On the other hand, would I feel better being ferried there in a car, buoyed by his unwavering love right up until the crucial moment of being dropped into the shark cage? There were so many hard decisions to make. I've been invited to a party this weekend, I mentioned casually to my parents one night over dinner. Oh, they murmured in response, glancing at each other. Whose party? Nathan Crabbs, I replied. And then, because the names of my peers meant very little to them, I followed up with, He's a boy at school. Right, my mother said. And will his parents be home? I expect so, I said. But even if they're not, it's just down the road. And how do you know, Nathan? My father asked, looking up from his pasta. I told you, I said. He's a boy at school? They looked at each other. Well, I prompted, beginning to get agitated. Well, what? My mother replied. Well, can I go? She shrugged. Sure, I don't see why not. Inside I beamed. It seemed impossible to believe my good fortune. I was going to a party with the cool kids and I'd only just started at the new school. I shouldn't have got my hopes up. The next day Jenny turned to me in science and said, I'm so sorry, but you're not going to be able to come to the party. Oh, I replied, crestfallen. I'm really sorry, she repeated. It's just that Nathan's only allowed to have a certain number of people. 
When I asked him if you could come, he said it was just impossible. No, it's fine, I said, trying to remove all trace of feeling from my voice. I understand, of course. Honestly, it's just a weird thing about numbers, she said. It's not you. She paused. I really wanted you to come. I get it, I said, smiling at her. She smiled back. I'll make sure you're invited to the next one, she said. Sure, I said, trying to sound upbeat. That'd be fun. She turned back to her work, but after a few seconds, she turned back to me. It really is just about the numbers, she said. I know, I told her. It makes total sense. That night, I told my parents I decided not to go to the party after all, and when Friday rolled around, I went to bed early. I lay there with the window open, listening to the sounds of the weekend unfolding outside. I imagined that every noise I heard, every bang, every moment of potential revelry, was coming from Nathan Crabbe's house. So many people, having so much fun. But the numbers. Of course we had to worry about the numbers. It made sense. It wasn't as if I were completely friendless. I'd met a girl early on who was just like me. Nerdy, not conventionally beautiful, and yet to come into her true power. But Natalie was more at ease with herself than I was, possibly because she had already found the man she had pledged the rest of her life to. His name was Jesus Christ, and they had a pretty strong relationship, despite him being dead for almost 2,000 years. I had dipped my toe into religion a handful of times and found that it wasn't for me, but I admired Natalie's devotion. She was different to the weird evangelicals who lived next door to us, whose church youth group I had once attended in a desperate attempt to make friends, but then never returned to for fear I might be accidentally drowned during a forced baptism gone wrong. Natalie was funny and kind and, I was pretty sure, would never try to kill me. Our friendship began in the schoolyard one day when we discovered a mutual love of the television sketch comedy show Full Frontal. One of our favourite things to do was to mimic the comedic stylings of a young Eric Banner, whose impression of a current affairs Ray Martin had us in stitches. We christened ourselves after two of the recurring characters, nudists named Beulah and Neville, who loved to do everything in the nude. Natalie was Beulah and I was Neville, and we cracked ourselves up laughing at the rude absurdity of it all. In between our impersonations and improv, we talked about boys. I told Natalie about Peter and swore her to secrecy, and she offered up a crush of her own to seal the contract. She was hopelessly in love with Christopher Sanderson, an academically brilliant wunderkind who was smart and funny and cute and, as he would tell me a few years later, terribly burdened at the time by his hidden homosexuality. Natalie's family was moving to Wyala in the summer and I was devastated. She was definitely my people and I had so few of them. Still, we made the most of the time we had and determined to enjoy ourselves. We formed what we called Crush Club, which really just involved the two of us talking in code about Peter and Christopher and occasionally passing notes to each other that extolled their respective virtues. We claimed to be terrified the letters would be intercepted and our secrets discovered, yet there was a tiny part of both of us that relished the thought of what such an occurrence might provoke. The planting of a seed, the catalyst that might force something to happen, finally. Life. Beginning. With a long and decidedly Peter-free summer looming before me, I was thrilled to hear that Jenny and her friends had petitioned the school to allow the Year 10s to have an end-of-term social, with the school agreeing on the proviso they do all the work to promote it. Having organised events now as an adult, this memory makes me laugh. 
What additional promotion could possibly be involved for an event held exclusively for the members of an institution they're forced to attend every day, and thus cannot help but hear about repeatedly? Still, I suppose it was meant to function as a lesson in responsibility, and few people rise to a planning challenge better than teenage girls. Signs began appearing around the school with Year 10 Social blaring out from them in bubble writing. The dance would be held on the last Friday of term, which meant it would also be the last day either of us were able to see our crushes. Natalie for eternity, and me for six weeks, which felt like practically the same thing. We were beside ourselves, and we weren't the only ones. Practically the whole grade was fizzy about it, with no teacher spared from the endless chatter about who was going with whom and who was planning to wear what. To this last point, Crush Club paid considerable attention. We pondered different outfits for hours, listing the pros and cons of each with the seriousness of a militia going off to war. Fashion was not my strong suit, what with all the caftans and chinos, but I felt like I could pull together something that might create a wow factor. I'd scoured all the op shops in town for what I thought were their best goods, and I indulged in hours of daydreams in which I walked slowly into the disco room to the sound of appreciative whispers and wide-eyed awe. Wow, I heard them saying, she looks amazing. I hadn't had much experience of being considered desirable by the opposite sex, which is to say I hadn't had any, but I'd watched a significant number of movies in which awkward, ugly ducklings were transformed into swans. I wanted that for myself, and I really believed it might be possible. I wanted to know what it felt like to walk into a room and feel like Lainey Boggs in She's All That or Louise Miller in Teen Witch. I had lived in a fantasy world inside my head for so long, casting myself in the role of the brilliant, brave and beautiful heroine, the girl who everybody wants to get the guy because it makes total sense for him to get her too. I saw myself playing her so clearly. Was it crazy to want other people to see me playing her too? Was it so out of left field to imagine Peter could see me as someone like her, captivating and magnetic? Someone he would be proud to be seen with in front of the fastidiously judgmental people he called friends. Once again, I want to reach back through the years and hold the girl I used to be. Maybe she was all of us, lost and alone and insecure, trying on different outfits and styles to see what she could fit into rather than looking for the things that could fit her. We were all so beautiful then, and we had no idea. Time has an irritating habit of moving both quickly and slowly all at once, and so it was that the end-of-year dance seemed to take years to arrive, and yet was upon us before we knew it. By mid-morning, our teachers had given up on trying to contain us. It was the last day of school and summer had truly arrived, so they let us have our intrigues and gossip as a parting gift. I raced home that afternoon, my insides churning. I only had a few hours to get ready and not a moment to waste. Endless planning with Natalie had seen me arrive at what I felt was the perfect outfit. I'd chosen a short slip dress in black, slimming, and sheer black tights. An unusual choice for the summer, but something I'd seen women wear to great effect in the romantic comedies I consumed voraciously. With a battered old pair of Doc Martin boots that I believed would give me the same kind of edge Jenny Turner had approved of all those weeks ago. I added a brown polyester jacket I'd found in the men's section at a local op shop. It was hot and sweaty but it was a nod to the androgyny that had brought me so much sartorial comfort in this and previous years. I completed the look by tying a floral silk scarf around my neck. A touch of elegance befitting a dance. As I knotted the scarf, I stood before the rickety wardrobe and looked in the crooked mirror. On the whole, I was pleased. I had tried my best with what I had, and the rest was out of my control. 
I tugged at the bottom of the jacket, twisting from side to side to see how well it covered the heft of my bottom, then turned back to face the mirror full on. This is it, I said to my reflection. This is the night we've been waiting for. I leaned towards the mirror and applied some of my mother's lipstick, a discarded tube of Chanel in a dark mulberry colour. I pressed my lips together, put the tube in my shoulder bag and went to the lounge room where my father was waiting to drive me back to school. I have a photograph from this night of me standing on the gravel driveway that led to the back of my parents' house, the space between upstairs and downstairs, our version of a mezzanine. The sun is beginning to set and the sky behind me is streaked with orange. I'm looking at the camera and smiling the tremulous smile of 15-year-old girls everywhere. There is so much to love about this girl and the wonderful, terrible optimism shining in her eyes. She is about to have her heart broken. I walked from the drop-off car park to the north of the school and tentatively entered the small assembly hall. There were flashing lights placed intermittently around the room, but I tried to avoid those. Years before, in another school and another country, an old science teacher had once told me that looking straight at burning magnesium for too long would sear your retinas and render you instantly blind. Admittedly, this was an unlikely risk with $12.95 fairy lights from Bunnings, but I had made it a rule to be careful around any light source of dubious origin. As a chronic hypochondriac, I assumed I would lose my sight one day. I just didn't want it to be before Peter Crayford and I had shared in the transformative experience of our first water birth. Natalie and I quickly found each other, and alcohol having not yet entered our lives as a social lubricant, made an awkward show of dancing together while furtively scanning the room. By this stage, I had developed a finely tuned radar for Peter's whereabouts and all conceivable movements, and I spotted him almost immediately. Play it cool. I thought to myself, my arms swinging by my sides as I shuffled to the unforgiving beat of the Smashing Pumpkins today. He was standing in the cool corner of the room, that unmarked space that seems to become protected by an invisible force field the moment someone of high social rank steps into it. His hair was doing that adorable floppy thing I liked so much, and he was wearing a red and black acrylic jumper that hung just below his hips. He was leaning against the wall, and I could see him smiling as he chatted with someone. Natalie was telling me a joke, and I was trying to make it seem like I was paying attention, but every fibre of my being was trained on Peter. It's a terrible habit that has followed me into adulthood, this inability to follow a conversation if someone in my proximity has captured my attention. It plagues me with crushes and exes alike, a hyper-instinct for where they are and, more importantly, who they're talking to. I have cried so many tears late at night after men I loved have gone home with women with whom I knew, just knew, something was brewing, maybe even before they knew it themselves. Natalie delivered the punchline to her joke, and I made a huge show of laughing, reasoning that being seen by Peter in the act of being diverted by something hilarious would endear me to him. Again, an unsupported thesis that follows us all into adulthood. I finished heaving my shoulders and suggested we go outside. It was stuffy inside the hall, and my jacket was made of non-breathable fibres. Outside, Natalie and I found a quiet corner and set to forensically dissecting the situation. 
It was true neither of the boys had looked in our direction, but as far as we could tell, they weren't looking at any other girls either. In Christopher Sanderson's case, this would turn out to be an early clue. We recounted everything we'd observed about their body language, which led to us talking about their bodies and repeating, for what must have been the millionth time, exactly what it was we found so cute about them. Sometime in the middle of our conversation, a shadow fell across us. I looked up to see the figure of Gavin Murdoch standing there. What are you skills talking about? he asked. Gavin was a perfect example of the inherent inequity of high school's cool politics, being one of the many boys allowed entry to the inner sanctum despite being physically repulsive, absolutely bereft of personality, and as interesting as a bag of bricks. Popular girls can be many things, boring, cruel, vapid, but never are they allowed to be anything less than physically angelic. I would estimate 80% of the popular boys at my high school were grotesque, with that percentage actually increasing alongside their popularity but for some reason they had managed to convince themselves otherwise. I apologise to the 25-year-old women many of them are aiming to date now. If we had understood the unbearable levels of audacity we were condoning back then, perhaps we would have staged an intervention. Natalie and I looked up at Gavin. Oh, you know, I said, we're just talking about... stuff. He took a seat next to us. Talking about anyone in particular? No, Natalie said. She was a lot smarter than me, and she dealt with these people for a lot longer. Come on, he said. You must have been talking about someone to be outside. Tell me. To this day, I have no idea what compelled me. Perhaps it was his affable manner which made it seem as if he liked us and was on our side. Maybe, and this is probably the truth of the matter, it was because I wanted something to happen. Good or bad, I wanted to blow the whole situation up so that something would occur and I could move on from whatever purgatory I seemed to be stuck in, plagued by the same daydreams and tormented by the same lack of progress. Whatever the reason, I spilled the beans. Well, I said to him, I do have a crush on someone. Go on, tell me, he exclaimed, leaning towards me. No, I screeched, as if I would tell you. You'll just go and tell everyone. No, I won't, he said. Promise, go on, just tell me. I took a deep breath and looked at Natalie. Her eyes were giving me mixed messages with, this is a bad idea and on your own head be it, on the one hand, and ooh, do it, this could be great, on the other. I took a deep breath. Okay. I told Gavin the whole story and made him promise, promise not to leak a word of it to anyone He swore that he would never even so much as think about it again, stood up and gave me a friendly pat on the shoulder. See yous, he said, and left us both on the bench. Natalie and I gossiped for a few minutes longer and then decided to re-enter the building. We moved past groups of students talking and laughing, some of them holding hands, and I felt unburdened in some way. I had confessed a secret and I hadn't been laughed at. Perhaps it wasn't so ridiculous after all to imagine myself paired with this boy who could freely pass through that force field without any problems. Maybe I could do that too. I stepped into the hall and realised how very, very wrong I was. You know that moment in a high school movie when the protagonist realises that everything is set against her and the entire social system she's been wading through is preparing to flush her down the proverbial toilet? Less Andy Walsh in Pretty in Pink and more Josie Grossy in Never Been Kissed. That's what it was like. As I walked back into the room that night, nothing was visibly different. But there had been a distinct shift in energy. 
You know how in that same movie we'd be shown cutaways to different whispered reactions? That's what it was like too, except I could sense and see them all in my head at the same time. I knew, I just knew that something had changed. A secret had entered the space and been received with wild enthusiasm. And what I was sensing was the sudden realisation that the owner of that secret, me, had just walked into the room. I told Natalie I needed to get something from my bag and walked to the side of the hall where I had casually thrown it on the ground. I made a show of rummaging around in it, cheeks burning, and when I looked up, Gavin fucking Murdoch was standing there. Hey, he said. You, I exclaimed. I can't fucking believe you. I told you not to say anything, but obviously you have. He held his hands up as if in surrender. What are you talking about? I didn't say anything, I promise. Really, I spat, because it feels a lot like you fucking did. Nah, he said, I swear. I took a deep breath. But just as I opened my mouth to speak again, Peter Crayford walked up. I stared at him as he leaned against the wall, looking at me. Hey, he said, after an uncomfortably long silence. Can I talk to you outside for a bit? I looked at him. This was the closest I'd ever been to him in my life. It was the first time he'd ever spoken to me. And he was standing there, asking me if I'd like to talk with him. Outside. For a bit. From behind him, I could see Gavin give me an enthusiastic thumbs up. Sure, I said, trying to sound light. That'd be great. As I went to follow Peter out, Gavin grabbed my arm. Good one, he said. I smiled and took a deep breath. Wish me luck, I said, still thinking that he'd done me some kind of favour. I was Alison Reynolds at the end of The Breakfast Club, Nicole Maris in the final scene of Drive Me Crazy, Drew Barrymore in anything. It seemed possible that every moment of every daydream I'd had about Peter Crayford specifically was about to be realised, and all I'd had to do was believe. Thank you, Gavin Murdoch, I thought to myself as I walked towards the door. You've done me a huge favour. To use the common parlance of the internet, lol. Peter was standing by one of the benches when I found him outside. He had one foot up on the wooden slats of the bench, his body bent over the crooked leg so I couldn't see his face properly. Hi, I said when I got there. He didn't say anything in response, so I continued. Um, okay. So you've probably heard people inside saying that I like you. Still nothing. And it's true. Oh yeah, keeping it real smooth. Throughout my declaration, Peter kept his head down, nodding occasionally. I waited, wondering what he was thinking. Would we talk first and then kiss, or kiss and then talk? I decided I would let him lead the way. But just as I was preparing to lean forward and close my eyes, he stood up, spun his body away from me, and walked back inside. He hadn't said a word. He hadn't even looked at me, not once during the whole exchange. Almost 25 years have passed since that night and I've endured countless more romantic indignities, with many of them more objectively terrible. But the heart of a 15-year-old girl is precious. It hasn't yet grown familiar with the sensation of being bruised and broken, nor does it know what it feels like to be healed and made stronger, the calcified scars protecting its soft and gentle insides. The heart of a 15-year-old girl believes that the love she holds is a powerful magic, and she stands ready and willing to give it away as an act of faith alone. How many of us have watched as that gift is thrown back at our feet, 
crumpled and streaked with mud, and come to the conclusion not that the recipient of our love was unworthy, but that the love itself, our love, was just not good enough. I stood there, my heart's love bruised and whimpering on the floor, and I felt scorn for it. This stupid love, this pathetic love, this embarrassing, sad love, and its great galump of a girl. What a fine joke we were. How we'd made everyone laugh. I kicked the love and watched it weep, and then, not wanting to leave it on the ground for anyone else to find, because as bad a love as it was, it was still my love, I picked it up and held it. I sat on the bench with the love in my lap, and together we looked at the night sky. I would not cry. Not here. I wouldn't give them that. In my lap, I felt the love steal itself, and listened as its tears and weeping subsided too. Eventually, I returned to the hall. The night was drawing to a close, and soon people would be making their way to the car park to be picked up by parents, or, in the case of girls like Jenny Turner, older boyfriends. I could sense heads turning my way, but I ignored them all and held mine higher. They could laugh at me all they liked, but I wouldn't give them the satisfaction of thinking they'd beaten me. It was a definitive moment. I'd lost something that night, but I'd found something too. A strength and resolve I hadn't known existed inside me, but whose flame was beginning to flicker and burn. Long after I'd forgotten the names and faces of the people in the hall that night, the flame would still be with me a raging bonfire to light my way through the darkest of nights. I pushed my way through the crowd and found Natalie. She didn't ask me what had happened, but instead pulled me into a hug and said, Oh my God, Neville, I'm going to miss you so much. I'm going to miss you too, Beulah. Promise you'll write to me? I promise, she replied. Let's dance. We joined a circle of other girls and shook our bodies together, singing along and laughing. I was still dying inside, but it felt better to be dying with these girls than to be dying alone. Somewhere during the third chorus of a Backstreet Boys song, Natalie grabbed me and whispered into my ear, I'll be right back. I watched as she walked to the makeshift stage and approached the DJ. They chatted for a few moments and then he passed her the microphone. The music cut out and she stood in front of everyone. She was leaving in a few days and she had nothing to lose. I just wanted to say that I'm really going to miss you all. She stood there beaming her bright, beautiful smile at everyone, a lot of whom didn't deserve to be included in that statement. I've loved knowing all of you, and I hope you guys have a great next couple of years. She paused. I also want to say this. Christopher Sanderson, I love you. Will you dance with me? The room erupted in cheers and whoops as the opening bars of Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You started to play. Natalie handed the microphone back to the DJ, stepped off the stage, and walked up to where Christopher stood. She smiled at him, the smile of a person who means no harm, and is asking for nothing except the pleasure of a dance. The last dance. He took her hand and gave it to her, this simple gift. And as people started to dance around them, some in groups and some in couples, they swayed together and didn't stop until the final bars had faded to nothing and the lights had come back on. I kept it together that night through the humiliating goodbyes and the see you next years, through the long drive home with my father who wanted to know how the night went. I could bear the heartache for myself, but I knew I couldn't stand seeing him watch me cry. And so I kept it in and told him I'd had a great time, and blinked back the tears that had threatened to spill over the moment I got into the car. I plastered a smile on my face for my mother, who had made me a cup of tea, and when I'd finished that, I yawned loudly 
claiming tiredness and an early morning wake-up to work at the ice cream shop. It wasn't until I was safely in bed that I let myself feel the crushing humiliation and disappointment of it all, and the tears flowed out of me in a deluge. I replayed the scene over and over in my mind, the agony of it piercing me anew. It was more than just the rejection that hurt. It was what the rejection confirmed about me, that I would never be good enough, never suitable enough, never interesting enough or funny enough, or most importantly of all, beautiful enough. It was so unfair to me that other girls seemed to have it so easy. Of course, I know now that all girls suffer in one way or another, some more than others, but this wouldn't have even occurred to me back when I was comparing myself to the ones with slim calves, small waists, and what seemed like an endless parade of boyfriends, or perhaps even just one or two very steady ones. Eventually, I fell into a fitful sleep, exhausted and spent. When I woke, I remembered I wouldn't have to see Peter Crayford at school the following week, and the thought both consoled and tormented me in equal measure. I survived, as we all surprise ourselves by doing. I spent most of the summer working at the ice cream store. I stopped listening to the Beatles, a silver lining, and resumed the purchasing of Ella Fitzgerald CDs and oversized caftans. Natalie and I wrote letters and spoke on the phone for a while, until we didn't, which is how these things go. We reconnected on Facebook a few years ago. She has a son now, like me, and has learned a lot about the world through her dealings with men, also like me. She's one of the strongest people I know. I consider it one of life's great privileges to be in her orbit and to be known by her. I thought of Peter frequently during the long school break, circling his home address in the white pages and dotting it with hearts. It gave me comfort to look at it, imagining him at home on his bed, his chair, at his family's dinner table. I have a memory, buried somewhere in the reams of stories and mental detritus I've acquired since then, of sending him a letter. I was certain I had misunderstood him somehow, or been misunderstood by him, and I sought to clarify the situation. Whether or not he ever received it, I don't know, but it was never mentioned. I returned to school at the start of the new year, anxious and excited, terrified to see him, yet also craving the fix I had been without for so long. I saw him standing in the courtyard on that first day, near Miss Prentice's class, and the site where my infatuation first began. He was walking with someone, or perhaps he was on his own. The truth is, I can't remember. Because although I tried to summon the strength of feeling that had plagued me for so many months, I found it had been replaced by just the barest flutter, and this too disappeared within a matter of days. He was just a boy, after all, neither god nor monster. He tried to kiss me once, when school had finished and we were all celebrating our graduation at a friend's house on the river. I'd found my place in the social hierarchy by this stage, figuring out at last how to pass through that invisible force field that had captivated me for so long. I moved between the two worlds, knowing I belonged to neither of them fully, but being okay with it nonetheless. We were standing on the banks of the river at night, having what might have been the first and last real conversation we would ever have. Suddenly, he lurched towards me and I instinctively pulled back. "'What are you doing?' I asked, vaguely incredulous. Don't you remember the year 10 social? He looked at me blankly. I told you I liked you and you brutally ignored me? He laughed. Come on, Clem, that was so long ago. And he's right. It was so long ago. 
It was so long ago and it was yesterday and we are 40 years old now, but we will be 15 forever. Like so many things, it turns out the story of loving a boy is really the story of loving a girl. Me. You've been listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. And that was a very special episode because I was reading from my very, very soon-to-be-released book, How We Love, Notes on a Life. And you'll be able to purchase the audiobook of How We Love through Audible Australia. I recorded it under slightly better conditions than how I've recorded today, so I apologise for any background noise. I'm working with what I've got. It's what I've done my whole life. The Big Sister Hotline will be back in its normal format next week. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. I'm really excited to release this book and I think that it shows a completely different side to me that a lot of people may be unfamiliar with. So I'm really excited on that level as well. Once again, special mention to my Patreon supporters. I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for supporting the work that I do. And if you'd like to become a supporter on Patreon, you can do that at www.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford. The link is in the liner notes of this episode. Thank you also to Acast, my podcast hosts. I appreciate you so much. If you like the Big Sister Hotline, I would love it if you'd consider rating and reviewing it. You can submit questions to the podcast on bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous. We're big sisters and we've got you back. Until next week, have a great week. Stay safe. Look after yourselves. I love you and I believe in you. And remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead. The Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.